This is Queen Victoria, and welcome to Murder Lab, the podcast where I don't just discuss one serial killer, I discuss several and what they have in common. This is one of the last in a series of families that murdered together. This is like number seven or eight. I was going to cover the Reigns brothers and the Chicago Rippers, which featured a pair of siblings. But there is a lot of information just on the Chicago Rippers, so I'm just going to cover the Rippers in this one. And I'll do the Reigns brothers in a separate one. And then that will end the Families That Murder Together series for a little bit until I gather some more families. Don't forget to keep an eye out on the Murder Lab Facebook and Instagram pages for all kinds of updates. I've, I mentioned that I love Hunt a Killer now, so I'm starting to post here and there about Hunt a Killer. Don't worry, no spoilers. As well as merch, I have merch out. I posted the magnets today. I'll post a picture of the shirts here in a bit. So you'll get to see the merch and what we will have available for sale. But make sure you keep an eye on the pages to uh, check that out. I'd also like to thank Igor, my socially distant assistant and immoral support. We actually have a surprise for you. Igor recorded a little bit of material herself. So I'm very excited at the end of this episode... I will have a few minutes of her talking about survivors of killers. So make sure you stick around for that. There will be more coming from Igor. Igor will be uh, will be the true crime in general coverer, <laughs> while I am the serial killer coverer. So she'll be covering like cults and other unexplained disappearances and things like that. So it's going to be exciting, folks. You just don't even know. But you will. You will. So let's jump on into the Chicago Rippers, also known as the Ripper Crew. They were active during 1981 to 1982. They had at least eight victims, maybe as much as 20. A lot of things say 18, but I noticed a couple recently said 20, so maybe. As you can tell from the name, the Chicago Rippers, it took place in Chicago. There were four people involved, Robin Gecht, Edward Spritzer, Andrew Cocorallius, and Thomas Cocorallius. For some reason, I really feel like it should be called Cocorallius. It just rolls off the tongue. But when I listened to some news things, they kept saying Cocorallius. So we'll go with that. Obviously, Andrew and Thomas are brothers. They have the same last name. Robin and Edward were just friends of theirs. I had a little trouble absolutely pinpointing how old they were, but... Robin was quite a bit older. He was 28. Edward Spritzer was probably t- around 21. Andrew was about 19. And Thomas was about 22. I found some things that said that Andrew and Edward were actually the same age. But then in other things, they were like a year apart or something. So the bottom line is they're in their early 20s, except for Robin, who's in his later 20s. So I'm going to go through the victims and how they're found And I'll go ahead and tell you what the killers said when they were caught. And then we'll get into, really get into the killers and stuff here in just a bit. But I think it's interesting to hear how they were found and then what the killers said all put together. So we have Linda Sutton, age 26th, was abducted May 23rd, 1981, and her body was found June 1st. She was nearly a skeleton. Her arms were bound behind her back with cheap handcuffs. They found money in her sock, which it turns out that's something that Chicago sex workers did because they didn't want to carry a purse and they didn't want their shit taken, so they just stuffed their money in their socks. 
She was ID'd by her fingerprints and dental records. She had been dead just three days before she was found, which was surprising because she seemed so decomposed that it seemed like she had been there longer. The autopsy guy said it's because she had wounds where her breasts were cut off, so parasites were more easily able to enter her body and advance decomposition. What Andy said about this murder is he claims that he and Edward held her down, Robin punched her in the face and hit her with a homemade axe and cut off her breasts. I noticed that some sources said that only the left breast was amputated, but I found the People versus Coco Rallius document where he had put in an appeal and so there was all kinds of the legal information about the victims and the autopsies and stuff. So I think that's probably pretty reliable. And I quote from the document, the victim's hands were cuffed behind her back, her slacks and underpants had been pulled down to the knees, and her sweater and bra had been pulled up around her shoulders. An autopsy was performed later that day by Dr. David Barrett, director of pathology at the Central DuPage Hospital. The victim's breasts and anterior chest wall were absent, and several ribs were in disarray. Several things had said that just her left breast was amputated, but according to the autopsy and to the guy who says he did it, or he was there when it happened, both breasts were taken. The other interesting thing is that my main reference is Deadly Thrills by J. Slade Fletcher. And in that book, it said that she was 21. But in the legal document, it said 26. And in a bunch of other stuff, I read 26. Again, I'm leaning on the legal document 26 being correct. I'm wondering if that was a typo. That makes me a little bit nervous. But mostly, pretty much all the other information, like dates and things, checked out. So that's why I think that might have been a typo and not just carelessness, which I guess that's kind of a form of carelessness. But I still don't think that totally discredits the whole book. The next victim was Lorraine Borowski, known as Lori. She was abducted May 15th. She was 21. Her body was found five months later on October 10th. So what happened there? Lori worked at a realtor's office and she always opened the office. So her employer got there and saw that it didn't open yet, and she's always there by that time. Then he saw some objects on the pavement in front of the office, like shoes, keys, cosmetics, coins, a hand tool, and a nut driver. Later that morning, he reported the disappearance. The shoes and keys were identified as Lori's. So when Tommy was interviewed, Tommy said he was involved with Lori's murder, that Robin took the girl off the street, drove to a nearby motel, Robin and Edward dragged her out of the car into the room, gagged her, and beat her till she stopped screaming. Tommy stood by the door while Robin and Edward had sex with her. Edward took a sharp wire wrapped around her breast until severed. Both had sex with the wound. R took an axe and killed her and stabbed her till she died with it. Tommy said he was trying to talk them out of it. It was making him sick. Then they wrapped clothes around her, took her to the car, and dropped her off in the cemetery. Robin said not to tell and... Tommy didn't tell, but he had a guilty conscience about it. In the book Rivers of Blood, they said that she was repeatedly raped and then subjected to having a wire wrapped around her breast to sever it from her body. Finally, one of her attackers killed her with a hatchet, and then the remains were in the same area where Sutton had been dumped. Now, the postmortem examination said that the navel and right nipple were present, but the left nipple was not. The skin ended about two inches below where the left nipple would have been. He did not find any signs of trauma or evidence of animal tooth marks on any part of the skin, including the portion from the victim's chest area. 
he found three separate wounds to the victim's back, which he believed could have been caused by either a knife or an ice pick type of instrument. Let's talk about this for a second. Tommy says that Eddie took a wire, wrapped it around breasts until severed, and they had sex with the wound. Now, in the postmortem report, it says that just one nipple was missing and that there weren't any signs of trauma on any part of the skin, including the portion from the victim's chest area. Now, I could be wrong, but I would think that if something was inserted into the wound, that would be considered trauma. I'm assuming that would show it would be obvious that something had done more than just cut off. So I'm thinking maybe he misspoke and maybe maybe from where he was standing it looked like that's what was happening, but I don't know. I'm really hoping that's not a thing because that bothers me more than I can express. And this was really hard to get through because of that. I had to pause a lot while I was reading the book. Now, we will learn here in a little bit that Tommy has kind of a low IQ and all of them are kind of all over the place with their statements, except Robin, who basically is like, I don't know nothing. Nothing happened. The main gist is the major points that Tommy says are things that are proven that happened. I was interested in the knife or ice pick because later it's mentioned in reports that they would torture their victims with ice picks and things like that. So I find it interesting that Tommy doesn't mention it and that they specifically mention an axe or a hatchet. But in the postmortem, it says that there was a knife or ice pick type of instrument. And so I think that's interesting because if there's a hatchet involved, I guess that would that could I would think that would have wider slashes than a knife or an ice pick. But that's just something to keep in the back of your mind. Maybe the ice pick type instrument got out and, t- and that people ran with that. Like, oh, it was definitely an ice pick. But it was just stated in the autopsy, an ice pick type of thing. On May 29th, 1982, Shui Mok, 30 years old, was abducted and her body was found September 30th. So that's several months later. Her family was from Hong Kong and they owned a restaurant. What happened is... They were on the way home. They were in two different cars. Her and her brother were in a car together, and then the rest of her family's in a separate car. They get into a fight. Her brother kicks her out of the car, and he's thinking, well, my family's going to see her, and they'll pick her up, and she'll get home safely. So he's pissed at her, but he's not, you know, he figures she's still safe. Well, unfortunately, the parents didn't see her and see that whole exchange, so she's walking home alone and gets abducted. And they don't realize she's missing until they all get home and they realize what happened. So they go looking for her, and they can't find her. So according to Eddie, she was walking, they jump out of the back of the van, grab her, Eddie punches her until she's limp because he didn't like the fact she was Asian. So he took her out of the van, they tear off her blouse and bra, see that she has small breasts, and get pissed off. So Eddie gets pissed about her small breasts, and he smashes her head on the side of the van. Robin said he could still do it and get the knives. Now Andy says that Eddie and Andy took turns punching her, Andy put handcuffs on her, then they all got out. Andy and Robin punched her because she screamed. Robin dragged her to the bushes and wrapped a wire around her throat. And then Robin cut her while Eddie held the wire. Each put themselves in the wound. Robin, Eddie, then Andy. Robin drug her to the bushes and they left. She apparently had extensive facial injuries, a deep horseshoe crack on the back of her skull several inches in diameter, that pierced almost all the way through the thick bone. In the legal document that I was referring to earlier, it says the victim was clothed, but her sweater and the zipper on her slacks were both torn. 
A necklace found on the remains was identified as belonging to the victim. An autopsy found multiple fractures on the victim's skull attributed to trauma from a blunt instrument. Also found two superficial fractures on the sixth and seventh ribs on the left side in the high stomach area and a cut on the left forearm bone. The cause of death was blunt trauma to the head and fractures of the ribs. No evidence of stab wounds, though stabbing possibly caused the victim's rib injuries. I did see somewhere that the body was so decomposed they couldn't actually see anything. There really wasn't much to know about the actual damage to the flesh. And I didn't see anything that mentioned a breast missing. So now keep in mind, she w- her body was out there for about four months. And part of that was through, and most of that was through the summer. So I can imagine that probably did a lot. So we don't, they probably wouldn't know if her breasts were cut off or anything like that. Though their MO, that was definitely a thing. Two weeks after her abduction, on June 13th, sex worker Angel York, age 19, picked up by a man in a van. She got in the van. They put a gun to her face. She was naked. They tied her, he tied her feet together, put handcuffs on her left foot to left hand to a shelf, had her kneel, duct tape her mouth, wound pantyhose around her breasts, put a gun to her head, and told her to cut her breast. He traced around the nipple, um, traced an area, and, and put a knife in her hand, put a gun to her head, and told her to cut. So she ends up cutting it, and he puts duct tape on the wound, threatens her, and just leaves her. She did report it to the cops, but unfortunately, at that point, the investigation didn't really go anywhere. On August 28, 1982, Sandra Delaware, a 19-year-old sex worker, was found. So here we have another 19-year-old. She had been stabbed, strangled, and her left breast was amputated. Eddie said they picked her up. They handcuffed her outside the van. She was naked. They were under a bridge. She filleted him while she was on top of Robin having sex with him. Robin asked if they were having fun. Eddie said no. And then Eddie stabbed her several times in the chest. But then he felt nauseous about it and threw the knife in the river. Andy's version. They took her under the bridge, threw her out, stripped her, confirms that Robin did have sex with her while she was filleting Eddie. Then she started to scream, so Andy put a rock in her mouth and tied a bandana around her face. He told her to sit on a wine bottle. She wouldn't. So Eddie and Andy both stabbed her. Andy forced the bottle under her and pushed her on top of it, which would explain a large pool of blood that was found under her. And then Eddie threw the knife and bottle into the river. There are additional details that when the body was found, the wrists were bound with blue shoelace, the ankles with the matching shoelace, and a bra was tied around her neck. September 8th, Rose Davis, age 30 years old, was found with almost identical injuries as Sandra Delaware. Her vaginal area was lacerated. She had lost a pint of blood. There was a piece of broken lumber four inches in her lesser pelvis. It went through the vagina, the uterus, and a portion of the small intestine. Two pieces of wood were found up in the abdominal cavity, contusions on both legs, a fractured skull, and massive subdermal hemorrhage. She was basically tortured to death. I'm going to take a sip of my uh, whiskey. Andy said that Robin had a homemade tool he carried, a type of axe with a wooden handle. Andy and Eddie held the woman down while Robin jammed the handle of the axe inside her, and then Andy stabbed her in the stomach several times because Robin told him to. Andy said... I felt sick then. I went to the back of the van. Robin and Eddie came back. Eddie was carrying weapons and Robin had the shoes. Eddie looked sick. Robin was giggling. In the legal document, it says that Andy explained 
that about two months earlier, I'm going to keep using the first names. Andy, Robin, and Eddie were in Robin's van when they saw a woman walking alone. Andy and Eddie ran up to the woman, grabbed her by the arms, and first forced her into the van. The van drove off. Andy said he put handcuffs on the victim while Eddie gagged her. When the van stopped, the three men dragged the woman to a gangway. Robin hit the victim three or four times in the face, and she fell to the ground. The defendant then pulled the victim's slacks down, and Robin pushed her blouse up and her arms and raped her. According to Andy, Robin later struck the victim in the face with a hatchet and forced the handle of the hatchet into the woman's vagina. Andy said that while acting at Robin's direction, he took a knife and, quote, poked at her midsection three or four times. Andy said that he dropped the knife and fell against the wall of the building. Andy returned to the van after several minutes, and then they drove off. According to cops who were called to the scene... A black sock or stocking was tied tightly around the victim's neck, and there was a similar ligature on one of her arms. She was lying on her back, her sweater was raised, and her bra had been ripped off. There were two or three slash wounds across the victim's breasts. Also, her slacks and underpants were around her ankles. There was blood in the vaginal area. The victim's face was covered with blood, and the blood had spattered on the side of the building next to where the victim was found. There were two extensive slash wounds across the victim's chest from the armpits inward across each breast. And it does confirm the existence of the wooden piece. In the book Deadly Thrills, they interview one of Robin's girlfriends, Tina, and I quote, Robin likes to make his own weapons for what he does to women. He calls them his tools. He had this short piece of broomstick he put together with a long pin in the end. He used to chase me around and stick me with it. Another tool was called Robin, she called Robin's little homemade axe which was a long piece of broomstick with a thick triangular piece of glass embedded at one end. Rose had it the worst of all of the victims. By far, they were the most brutal with her. Around September 11th, or September 22nd, depending on what you look at, Carol Papas, 42-year-old wife of a pitcher for the Chicago Cubs, disappeared. So at that point, they wondered if maybe she was a victim. Although, three years later, they found her body in a car in a pond, and it was ruled an accident. But it's kind of interesting that for a little while, they thought maybe that was related. Although, officially, it was not. The next victim is, it's strange, because in the midst of all this vulgar and disgusting attacks on women, this was a drive-by. So, Rafael Torado, age 28, was a drug dealer who was killed in a drive-by, and one of the males with him was wounded. Now, Eddie said that he was driving when Robin saw the guys and just decided to shoot at them. So he just shot at them while they were in a phone booth or something. And then Raphael died and the other guy was wounded. Later on, when they searched Robin's apartment, they found the rifle that matched the Toronto shooting. That would be the only variation on their victims. Cynthia Smith was a sex worker that went to the hospital because her breasts were cut up by, and I quote, the hillbilly in the red van. She actually came forward when she saw flyers of Robin, and that happened in the same area as Linda Sutton. Thankfully, nothing more happened to her. That was bad enough, but obviously we're very happy that she wound up living. There was a witness that came forward later that said she saw Robin with blood on his jacket and jeans, and his hands dripping with blood, so she ran away, which is a good impulse. Now the next victim is... October 6th, Beverly Washington was found. She was either 18 or 20, and she was also a sex worker. In Deadly Thrills, they call her Denise Gardner, which I'm assuming, obviously, are trying to protect identities. She was picked up in a red van, handcuffed. Her clothing was forced off. She was forced to perform oral sex on the man. 
and then he made her take 15 blue pills. They found her in an alley, and she was alive. Thank God. But her left breast had been crudely removed, and her right breast was barely still attached. Thankfully, she was able to give a description of the van and the attacker. At this point, she gave such a good description. Like, down to it was a red van, she was able to describe the guy and what he was wearing and his different kind of shoes. And that the van had a red, had a blue and white feathers with a roach clip hanging from the rearview mirror. So it was very specific. And they just so happened, a couple of cops saw that van. And they pulled it over. And it was Eddie Spritzer driving the van, said it belonged to Robin Gecht. So they went to see Robin. According to Deadly Thrills, Andy and Tom were there. And they all four went to the station. Beverly ID'd Robin in the lineup as the man who had attacked her. Now, Eddie said that he didn't know names. He just said that there was a, a black sex worker that Robin drugged, cut off a breast, had sex with the wound, and then had sex with the severed breast. And then it turns out that he was talking about Beverly. Again, I don't, this sex with the wound business just needs to stop. And it needs to not be a thing. So I'm really hoping it's not a thing. And I would love to pretend like it can't be a thing. So we're just going to move forward. Again, we have... Tommy, Eddie, and Andy have all mentioned the specific detail. So that's why it's kind of interesting is that they each say that. In another reference, it says that the cops stopped a red van with Eddie Spritzer in it, and Andy was with him. They said the van was Robin's. So that's another thing where before it was just Eddie who took him to Robin, and Andy and them were there. And now in this account, it's Eddie and Andy that leads them to Robin. So in the legal document, it says, Andy was eventually arrested in connection with the abduction and murder of Lori Borowski. On October 20th, 1982, Chicago police officers stopped a reddish-orange van that matched a description given to the police by a crime victim. The van was being driven by Edward Spritzer and belonged to Robin Gick. In a subsequent search, three knives were found in the back of the van. The inside handle on the back door was missing. According to the trial testimony, the door could be opened only by inserting a tool where the lock should have been, and the nut driver found with Lori Borowski's keys and other effects in front of her office could have been used for that purpose. Spritzer and Gecht were arrested sometime later, and during the evening of November 7, 1982, Spritzer led police officers to the defendant's home in Villa Park. The defendant, Andy, returned that night with the officers, and he confessed to the murder of Lori Borowski and several other women. So in the legal thing, it was Eddie alone in the van. That confirms what was in Deadly Thrills. So apparently whatever was in that other book is not completely accurate. So it was Eddie. He says, this belongs to Robin. And then that leads them to Andy as well. So when they when Robin gets on their radar, they start looking into him. They found out the previous year he had rented a room with three friends and they all had adjoining rooms. There were loud parties and they appeared to be in a cult. Now when they left, apparently they left a forwarding address. And the other guys were, of course, the Coco Rallius brothers and Spritzer. We've got Eddie, then Robin, then Andy. When Eddie and Andy confess, and Robin, like I said before, was just the vault. He was like, I don't know, I don't know anything. He was just very calm and friendly and cooperative and seemed genuinely concerned, or he just seemed unruffled, and he claimed he didn't know anything about any illegal activity. Eddie and Andy gave up Tommy. So Andy turned on his own brother, and Eddie turned on Tommy. When the cops had questioned Tommy, they didn't really think he had anything to do with it. And his IQ was like 77, and he seemed a little slow. But he was really nervous. 
And they were like, okay, so he was definitely involved. So they took him in, and he had confessed he was part of two of the crimes. He failed a polygraph, and he confessed that they took women to Robin's place with his satanic chapel. They raped, tortured, cut off breasts with a wire garrote, and they, he said they would eat parts of the breasts as a sacrament, and then Robin would masturbate on them before putting them in a box. He said one time he saw 15 breasts in the box. And a quote from Deadly Thrills. Tommy said that Robin, Eddie, Andy, and Tommy would kneel around a table that Robin had fixed up as an altar in his attic. Robin lit candles and read from the Bible. Each of the men took turns masturbating into the flesh portion of the breast. First Robin, then Eddie, Andy, and Tommy. After they were finished, Robin would cut the breast into pieces and they ate it. Tommy said that he personally had participated in 10 to 12 of these ceremonies. The Elmhurst Police Chief John Milner, who was a detective and polygraph expert who took the confession of Tommy, said, I've done many homicide cases and I've never heard of anything so horrendous in my life. He talked about raping the women, stabbing the women, having sex with the knife wounds, cutting their breasts off to leave what he called Robin's Mark. One reference claimed that the altar was also for dissecting animal and human parts. They did find the chapel in Robin's apartment, uh, complete with upside-down crosses, but there was no box of boobs. There was also satanic literature retrieved from the apartment of Andy's. At one point, when Tommy was awaiting sentencing, he led the police to the field where Carol Pappas was allegedly buried, but they couldn't find the remains. So that's kind of an interesting little tidbit, and of course now we know that she was elsewhere, unfortunately, in a pond. Tommy ends up getting 70 years, he would, which would put him on par- eligible for parole in 2022 at 61 years old. But he got out in 2019 after serving 35 years. There was quite a ruckus, as you can imagine. I looked up, that's one of the videos I watched, was the reaction of his reaction being let out. And of course, at this point, he's saying he didn't do like anything and that like confessions were forced and that he was led to say things and he claims he did not participate and he had no knowledge of it. He confessed because he was on drugs and cops fed him information and he says he has an alibi for Lori's death. So this was on uh, CBS Chicago in 2019 when he came out, when he got out. So all of those statements he made where he had all those details, he's now claiming those weren't a thing. We'll surmise some things here in a bit. Let's go through the rest of them. So his brother, Andy, when Eddie starts talking, he immediately starts talking about Robin. Robin did this, Robin did that. Well, then later, after he sees Robin again, he's like, ugh, shit. And he changes the story and said, oh, every time I said Robin, I meant Andy. He said, Andy had been Robin's neighbor and actually lived with him for a while. One of the cops knew that he was always in trouble for small stuff, like breaking bottles on a straight corner, harassing passersby. Their mom died years ago. Six kids were raised by their dad, who was a Greek butcher. The kids were on the streets all the time and were known by local cops. One sister claimed that the dad molested her. He said she was rebelling against authority. She was taken out of the home, recanted, went back, then ran away. When Andy initially confessed, he said something about 18 victims. Sergeant Flynn said, and I quote, Andy was a wimp posing as a tough guy. But he was a boy who'd had some upbringing, some sense of family and of moral values. It was obvious he feared Robin, but he hated him too. He hated the terrible things he'd done, and he hated that he'd done them only at Robin's bidding. I didn't get the feeling Andy was confessing out of a sense of philanthropy. It was more like, 
This guy Robin is so nuts and so scary. Is he going to come after me next? Is he going to do to me what we did to all those women? Andy had gotten himself into something that was way beyond him, and he seemed not happy exactly, but kind of relieved like it was finally all over. In Deadly Thrills, they talked to Andy and Tommy had a sister named Elizabeth. She had a best friend named Lisa. Lisa was apparently involved with Andy for a little bit, and she claimed that he was unable to perform sex normally and never instigated. When she would instigate, he would try, but it was never satisfactory. She said, and I quote, He liked to be held against her large breasts and cuddled. His mom died when he was 11, and he never got over it. She said he missed his mom, and his dad was kind of cold and strict. So I believe that she is implying that since he didn't have a mother figure, that he wasn't really interested in sex, he was interested in that comfort. And again, we have... Uh, a fascination with breasts, which I can understand, but not to hurt them. Andy confessed the about the random shooting of the man. He was convicted of murder and he was put to death in 1999 of lethal injection. He was actually the last one in the state to be put to death at that time period. I'm not sure if it's been reinstated since then, but there was a big thing about that, which that's interesting to read about just in and of itself, because apparently there were like 11 people. They've been put on death row and then proven innocent, but two guys had actually been killed on death row through capital punishment, and uh, it turns out they were innocent. So the guy, the governor at the time, really was wringing his hands whether he should pardon them or not, because... He's like, we've had this problem of people being innocent, but this guy did some bad shit, so I don't know. But he ended up going through with it. Eddie said that they had a routine where they'd ride in the back and Robin would be driving. He'd pick someone up, and when he was done with his business, he would tap the floor twice. They'd get out through the back, and then Robin would come out with a girl, and they'd do whatever they disgusting things they were going to do. Eddie did say that sometimes Robin made the crew eat parts of sliced-up breasts, and... Edward was sentenced to death, but it was changed to life in 2002. Robin, there was not enough evidence for any of the murders, so he was convicted of rape and attempted murder of Beverly, Washington, and he got 120 years. Again, he never, he never said anything. He never cracked. To get more into it, I did an episode on the serial killer letters by Jennifer Furio, where I specifically mention David Allen Gore's letters and compared them with another book where he had sent letters to someone. So interestingly, both Eddie and Robin have letters in that book. Now, I really, really was hoping I could delve mostly into Andy and Tommy because this is the siblings that killed together or the families that killed together. So I was hoping that I could focus more on their involvement and that dynamic. But there's really not a whole lot of information on Andy and Tommy. It's mostly Eddie said a lot of stuff. I mean, Andy did say quite a few things, but there's not really a lot based on just Andy and Tommy's relationship. And, you know, there's just very general from what I saw so far. Now, if I end up happening onto more information, of course, you know, I will let you know. So I'm not going to go too deep into this specifically what Robin and Eddie said. I will save that for a different episode, but I will give you um, an idea of kind of what they what they said in here because it, it does pertain to the case overall. Eddie said that he didn't know much about the Coco Relais brothers. He met Andy first, and he said Andy was always drunk or high. He didn't know Tommy at all. He said, and I quote, No, the Coco Relais brothers didn't force me into anything. I felt they were in the same boat as I was, but I could be wrong. After all, they did know Robin way longer than I have. And then he talks about an incident in high school. 
So Elizabeth, again, is Andy and Tommy's sister. A friend of hers claimed that Eddie had shown up for prom with blood all over his mouth and shocked the students. He seemed pleased and refused to wash it off, bragging that he was part of a satanic animal slaughter out in the woods, and people believed it. He claims in his letters to Jennifer that when I told you of that dance, it was a high school dance. My point is this. When I told you of the girl we doubled with had taken pictures of me covered in blood, well, Christina tells me they were paid to say that, and Christina was asked to do the same. But she wanted no part of that. So now I see that one family was paid off to speak and lie to get me on death row. So in response to the pictures of blood all over his mouth as a result of satanic things, he claims that people were paid to say that. To dig further into this satanic implication, everyone interviewed for Deadly Thrills had more and more bizarre stories. There are ceremonies, orgies involving Robin's sister-in-law and circle of friends. The counselor at the school said there was a satanic fad sweeping through the school, and I quote, Students were wearing pentagrams, carving 666 into desks, drawing inverted crosses on hands. I heard some of the teenagers whispering arcane oaths at one another while passing in the halls. There was constant talk of ceremonies, witchcraft, and candles. Talk that would suddenly stop when a teacher approached. In the large forested area behind the high school, teachers found smoldering campfires, circles of stones, odd bits of cloth nailed to trees, and sometimes the skeletons of dogs and cats. So this is a good moment to talk about the satanic panic, which if you're not familiar, there was a time period where it seemed like every school across the nation, everyone all over the place were becoming Satanists and sacrificing things and holding these black masses and all the teenagers were were at risk and all these schools thought that the kids were, you know. And it turns out, for the most part, that was a bunch of bullshit. To the point where some some kids were claiming that their parents had molested them and they were being put under hypnosis and they were, some I think were actually taken from homes and then it turns out it was a bunch of shit and that it was like false memories and the kids were being led to say stuff. It was a big hunk of hooey. Now I'm not saying that, I mean it's possible since they did find an altar in Robin's place, I think it's possible they probably did have some kind of ceremony and and I'll get more into that here in a bit but I think as far as the high school thing I don't know that I would put a whole lot of weight on that and if students were wearing pentagrams and whispering to each other they're probably just trying to freak the adults out probably just they know that the parents are reacting so they're just you know and I really don't think it's nearly as big of a deal as the parents and the counselor and stuff made of it but again it's something that you can latch on to and it makes things more interesting and exciting I don't know that anybody was paid to say anything I don't think that sometimes you need to do that and some people's imaginations just run wild anyway Robin said in the book she had asked him Jennifer had asked him point point blank what his fascination with breasts was or his obsession with breasts and he says his obsession with breasts goes back to his great-grandfather and that they had, all throughout his family, they had married women with big breasts. And he boasted that I think he said his wife had a size 39D. But he did say he had never removed or had sex with a severed breast. He said it was Andy's idea of a joke, and I quote, that Andy was saying all kinds of shit and laughing afterwards. He also said that he doesn't believe Eddie killed anyone personally, but maybe he assisted the K brothers with things. He makes sure to note that he loves women and never had a gay experience. And then he couldn't believe he was blind to their actions that this whole time that he was friends with them, that he didn't know they were doing these terrible things. He reiterates that he's never had a relationship with a man. And then at one point, and I quote, he says, Life is much like a chess game. 
It says chest. He wrote chess. This is his writing. He wrote chess instead of chess game. And that is a hell of a Freudian slip. When you're being accused of doing these terrible things to women's breasts, and then you say, I'm not, like, I would never do that, and I'm not, a, you know, life is a chess game. I guess it does go along. Maybe he, he really is obsessed with breasts. He's putting chest in everything. The reason I think it's interesting that he keeps mentioning that he's never had a gay experience, and which might seem especially out of the ordinary if you're like, well, he's known for loving breasts so much that he wants to take them and collect them. So obviously, you know, no one seems to be questioning his heterosexuality. Well, what happened is Robert Ressler from the FBI, and you may recognize that name. You should recognize that name. I've brought it up before, and you've probably heard it in other true crime things. He is a famous FBI guy. If I remember correctly, he's the one who coined the term serial killer. He had a profile on the main guy who was probably doing the uh, Ripper slayings. He said that the guy was probably unsure about his sexuality, was probably bisexual and a latent homosexual, and that that is what was causing all of his excessive violence towards women and wanting to cut off breasts is that he was actually struggling within himself with his sexuality. That is interesting. So Robin's brother-in-law, Thomas McCaffrey... When he was interviewed, he said his sister Rosemary, who's married to Robin, showed him a wound in her breast that were becoming infected and that Robin did it. And that sometimes he would hear her screaming at night and she claimed that the, the only way he wanted to have sex was to be hurting her. He said he believed that Eddie was Robin's lover and that Andy had been Eddie's previous lover and that, that Andy had written a love letter to Robin. So here we have a couple of things. We have that he says, well, my sister showed, showed me wounds that Robin caused on her breasts. And I know they do mention in some cases that he apparently stuck pins in her breasts and made her keep them in there. And that's why they would get infected. So that kind of, that reiterates his wanting to do things to breasts other than admire them. And then he said that he thought Robin and Eddie were lovers and that Eddie and Andy were lovers and that Andy had written a love letter Robin. So... I didn't really see in many other things. None of them claimed that they ever slept together or they never. nothing of that was ever mentioned, which if they were trying to keep that a secret, if they were ashamed of it, then I, you know, I can understand. It seems a little strange that they, they could admit doing terrible, horrible things to women, but they couldn't admit being interested in, in each other. That seems odd to me. But again, everyone has their idea of standards and it may seem fucked up to other people but even serial killer have their standards. I know I make jokes about it like, well, it's good to see he has standards. And, but it really is. Everybody has to have some level of what they're comfortable with. And whether that seems completely fucked and out of kilter to you, maybe to them, it is much better to be known as doing horrible things to women and doing these terrible, awful things than to be a homosexual. I don't know. Robin had been kicked out and lived with a man, and at the time the man was interviewed, he was 55 years old. He was openly homosexual. He had met Robin's family when they all lived in the same apartment complex. Robin was the oldest of seven kids, and things were tumultuous, so they were always in and out of his place. He tried to help take care of them. At 18, Robin got into pills and was always high, and he could be crude around teenage girls, and he liked to brag about ripping women off. He would always talk about, oh, you know, I've I'm hanging out with this woman and I got her to buy me a car. I got her to do this. And he was always really impressed with himself that he can get women to do whatever he wanted them to do. He helped Robin and Rosemary by paying phone bills for them. Rosemary was jealous of Robin's attention to other women, but he made a comment like she seemed to like to go befriend them. So even though she complained about him, she liked to try to 
befriend them. I don't know. If you look at this, there's a pointed statement that he is an open homosexual, but he never mentions having a relationship with Robin. He never mentions Robin paying attention to men. And unless he is respecting Robin not wanting to be openly homosexual and he's respecting that Robin wouldn't like that, I... That just seems kind of unbelievable to me. I think that if he's willing to say these other things about Robin and Rosemary, I would think he would also talk about that. So that kind of, I, I don't know. That one kind of is, and, and again, it's the big thing here is just because someone is homosexual and someone of the same sex goes and lives with them, it does not mean anything is happening. By the same token, just because a man and woman are living together doesn't mean they're having sex. So I think maybe that's kind of a loaded thing to say is that he's an open homosexual. Not sure why that's important other than just putting that there like, well, I don't know. That's an It's an interesting detail. So it does kind of cause you to say, well, let's look into it and see if that adds any credence to or not. And I don't think that it really does in this case. Someone that knows Eddie stayed with a friend of Eddie's in the spring and summer of 81. The guy's name is Greg that is saying this. So he stays w- stayed with Eddie's friend. Eddie would apparently stay in the apartment two to three nights a week. And I quote, Eddie and that guy would have sex on the bedroom floor. Greg said Eddie's friend tried to talk to him into a sexual relationship too, but he refused. So again, we have someone who's claiming that Eddie is homosexual. And he claims Eddie's friend was also trying to talk to him into a sexual relationship. So this guy apparently is like, Eddie's gay and everyone around him's gay. I don't know. It's all of a sudden, you know, we're hearing Eddie's fucking everybody and everybody Eddie knows wants to fuck everybody. I don't don't know how reliable this Greg guy is either. So don't know. Well, then Tommy said that Robin was bisexual. In the book, Deadly Thrills, they make a point to say, well, do you know what that means? And again, his IQ is like 77. He doesn't seem like he totally gets everything. So he actually gets offended. And he's like, yeah, he likes to lay with men and he likes to lay with women. So he claims that Robin's bisexual. We've got all that. The reason this might be of note to the case and how how this could apply to motivation, because frankly, I don't think it ultimately matters who they're sleeping with, if it's men or women. Because ultimately what happened is... A group of women died in a very painful and horrible way. Why it it might be important that Robin could be struggling with his sexuality is, and I'll quote Deadly Thrills, This, psychologists say, seems to be the case with many sexual psychopaths and other tormented spirits. Often it is not what the person is that makes them sociopathically ill. It is his inability to accept to come to terms with it. So the idea behind this theory is that if Robin is really having homosexual feelings or bisexual feelings, if he's torn between feeling like he should only be attracted to women and not feeling comfortable with that he's also attracted to men, or that maybe he's only attracted to men and not really to women, that he might take it out on women because they're the ones that are causing his conflict. Is he's mad because he can't, he doesn't want to like them the way that he does, or he's taking it out on them that he can't be both ways. He needs an outlet for his anger and it's displacing that anger. I don't know. I'm not sure how much credence to put into any of that. I mean, ultimately, it would be interesting to know what motivated him. But I think it's specifically, I will say, it is very interesting that he does make a point several times in his letters to Jennifer to say, I love women. I've never had a gay big gay experience. I've never had a, let me say it again. I've never had a relation, relationship with men. I like women. I like the boobs. I like not just boobs. I like the big old boobs. I like the biggest boobs that you can put in my face. 
it's one of those things where why does he feel the need to to say it so much? It's from a. Uh, Hamlet, the lady doth protest too much. So it's kind of like, well, are you bringing it up because it's true and you really don't want it to be? Or is it just that you are you want to be understood? You want people to get what you're really about? Or frankly, he's saying that he never did shit. So he's just ready just to deny everything. He's very adamant about everything he says that he's never done shit and that he he's innocent of everything and he was railroaded and he may just be making a big old deal about everything because he doesn't want anyone to believe anything other than he's innocent. So he's just going to commit to, I love women. I've never done anything to hurt women. I love breasts. I wouldn't hurt breasts. And there's no way that I'm gay. He's just throwing it all out there and hoping it all sticks. I guess we will probably never know. And I, again, I'm not, I'm not sure that it completely matters other than... It would be helpful to know if that's what he was struggling with to see if there's any way that we could detect that in other people early on enough that we can prevent it from becoming so bad. I guess just it would be nice to to know if that's what caused it in him to see how likely it is, you know, to get statistics and information to gather to try to prevent it in the future. One thing that's glaringly obvious and important is that Robin was the ringleader. So whether Robin wants to admit it or not, Andy, Tommy, and Eddie are all pointing the finger, all their fingers, their toes, their legs, some other people's fingers, at Robin. And they all seem super fucking spooked by him. When Eddie first admits, he says a bunch of shit, and then he retracts. And then he starts saying, you know, Andy did it. And then he just starts saying all kinds of fucking stuff, which is not unusual in these kinds of situations. Andy also seems to be kind of uh, weirded out by him and a little bit nervous. And as you heard the cops say, is he feels like that he was nervous about him. And then Tommy's basically like, I kept asking them not to do it, but then they kept doing it. So everyone seems to feel kind of powerless. Andy was like, he told me to stab her, so I did. And Eddie's like, well... I could tell that he wanted me to say that I wasn't having fun, and so I stabbed her because I could feel that that's what he wanted me to do. This is what seems to be Robin's power. In Deadly Thrills, when they interview one of Robin's girlfriends, Tina, she says this. Well, for one thing, he's got the power to find me anywhere I go. I left him once. Actually, I left him lots of times. But he always found me no matter where I went or what I did to get away. He always took little things from my apartment he took a gold chain once and a notebook, sometimes a photograph. If I would ask him about it, he'd just laugh real mean and spooky. He was using those things to control me. My family says he's evil. They won't even come near me because of Robin. They say they won't have nothing more to do with me if I'm with him. When Lisa was with Andy, she said that Andy seemed afraid of Robin but respected him and Robin seemed in charge. Andy would talk of Robin like, I quote, a magical, powerful superhuman. And Lisa says... Actually, I was kind of disappointed the first time I met Robin. From Andy's buildup, I was expecting Robin to be this really awesome dude. Instead, he just seemed like some kind of creepy little weasel. Tommy said that when he met Robin, it was like he was looking in his eyes and he was there in his ball, which I'm assuming meant he was caught in his fear of influence. And then he cried after he said it. And then after the break, it was like he was reminded about Robin's power. And he said it wasn't Robin. It was his bro brother, Andy. So Andy also got a lot of slack for whatever Robin supposedly did and then didn't do. Tommy also says, he looks into your eyes and tells you to do something and you just have to do it. He warns the detective, you be real careful when you talk to him. Don't you look into his eyes or I'll get you too. Now, when you actually hear Tommy talk, it's really hard to understand. He has like no teeth. It's very hard. They had to 
subtitle him. So I, I, I wish that I could do his voice, but the point is, he says, he looks into your eyes and tells you something and you just have to do it. Don't look into his eyes or he'll get you too. So this is some hell of a power. Not just the Ripper crew felt it. It was his girlfriends, friends of girlfriends, and every, you know, there was a whole bunch of people that met him that were felt that they were caught in his power, felt that he had some kind of power. Now, obviously, Lisa said, okay, I didn't really feel a power, but he was a creepy little weasel. So what's interesting is there's another person was like, there's no, what? Like, like he just seemed weird. And several people were like, he's just weird. The idea that some people were totally drawn in and other people were just like, bleh. He was very divisive. And that's actually not uncommon when you have a strong personality. Either the power works or it doesn't. It can, it can flip either way. It depends on the person that you're dealing with. I think it's important to bring up here that when you have a highly influential person who's around weaker people, it's the same idea of people who get swept into cults. They're in a vulnerable position. It's said that Eddie might not have been terribly intelligent either. Tommy obviously had a lower IQ and he was, it was easier for him to get pushed around, especially if his brother, you know, since his brother was involved. I still really would love to know that dynamic between how Andy and Tommy related in relation to stuff. Because it, when Eddie talks, sometimes he's just like, oh, Tommy, I don't really know Tommy. But it's like, if you're raping women together and you're masturbating over breasts together, I feel like you know him fairly well. I mean, you know him well enough. You may not go and have dinner together, but Jesus. Maybe they're so busy, busy doing that stuff, he couldn't really get to know the guy. I don't know. I wish that I knew the dynamic between Tommy and Andy when they were dealing with all this and how they interacted based on this relationship. But that might actually make it easier to control the whole group if two of them are brothers. You have the brothers that can manipulate each other even. So you've got the brothers under your control. And then you have Eddie who's who just really wants to feel like he's somebody. And again, that's how some of these cult type people or charismatic people can get you is they see your vulnerability and they're able to exploit it. And I will admit, I'm sure that maybe not everybody, but I'm sure that most of you have had moments where you're doing something and you're like, how the hell did I get here? And it may not even be something major. It may be like, how did I wind up having five bad ones? I think they cut you out after two. Who drank all that whiskey? <laughs> you know, or anything like that. Who ate that entire cake? You know, you have moments where maybe you're like, oh, this got out of control and I'm really not sure how. Now, I will admit that I have had a relationship where I wound up doing things that I could not believe later that I had done. And it's just, I was in a vulnerable place in my life. I was desperate for attention. And for whatever reason, I wanted that specific person's attention. So if they wanted me to do something crazy with them, I would do something crazy with them. Now, we didn't do anything as crazy as like Starkweather and her, his girlfriend or anything like that. We weren't like uh, natural born killers. But it was just weird stuff. And but and then you wonder later, like, was that me? Because that's weird. Like, how would I ever, me, have ever got myself into that situation? So it's just sometimes things line up in just the right way and you catch yourself doing stuff. So I do believe that maybe after they stabbed someone that they were sick because they got caught up in the moment and then they realized, holy shit, that was a real thing. Reality started to kick in. And while they're doing it, they see Robin's approval. They see the other guys around them doing it and they get caught up in the adrenaline. But then it's real. So then they can feel bad, but then it's just, it's addictive. And then sometimes you don't know how to get out of it. So there's a lot of things. I'm not making excuses for it. I'm trying to explain why it's possible that it happened. I think it's fucked up that they were never able to find any conclusive proof that Robin was involved, 
but that's the same with like um, the Hillside Strangler, Anthony Bianchi, and um, Water- Fred Waterfield, who assisted David Allen Gore. Both of those, both of those guys, they couldn't find enough to really prove that they'd done it. So this is another thing that you see when you have two or more serial killers working together is that one of them tends to be in charge and they have their lackey or their goon to or in this case goons to do the dirty work so that way they can have their hands clean i mean robin it's unbelievable that he was able to stick to his innocent plea and that he just swears up and down and he's adamant and he swears so it's uh, it's pretty mind-blowing that they couldn't find anything to prove it. I really think that that's probably true, though, that he really was the ringleader and that they all fell in line behind him and did what they... I think they did what they said they... I mean, obviously, somebody had to have cut the breasts off and somebody had to do this shit. And all three of them were I- implicated in it. So I do kind of wish that... I could find more information. Um, like, it was nice that I found that autopsy stuff because that seemed to help clarify some things. So I will be doing more digging and seeing if I can find more information. I will also be doing episode on groups of people that kill together. I'll do an episode on specifically cults and Satan worshipers or supposed Satan worshipers that killed together. So I will be digging into them more later. A quick note is during the same time, in the same district, the Tylenol murders were happening. So a quick... If you don't know the Tylenol murders, there was a woman who bought some Tylenol, took it, and died. And then someone else took some Tylenol and died. And it was from a couple of, I think a few, I don't remember if they could trace it back to the same pharmacy or a few different pharmacies. But what it boiled down to is they could not figure out where it generated and what if it was like all of the bottles that were tainted. So it was this huge, crazy thing. I can't remember how many people ended up dying from it, but this was... Uh, just it exploded and it was just insane this is before you had the tamper-proof caps where it has like the foil on the top that's what led to that happening keep in mind you have these women who are getting killed with their breasts amputated and being mutilated while you have some crazy person that poisons some tylenol and you don't know how to trace that down in the meantime there was also a body found on november 16th in the same place where sandra delaware was killed she was nude Bloody clothing was next to her. She was stabbed all over her body and a bond slip in her jacket. Her name was Susan Baker. She was also, she was a sex worker. But the whole Ripper crew was in custody. So then there was like, fuck, is there a fifth? Is there another person that we don't have? Well, then another sex worker called and said that a trucker had picked her up, pulled a knife on her. She ran and got his license plate number. Well, then another woman was found unconscious. She said a man had picked her up, pulled a knife on her, and she jumped out of the car. They trace a license plate back to Ricky Parker, who was a 33-year-old truck driver, and both of the women ID'd him in a lineup, and he confessed. It's not affiliated with the Ripper crew. It was just a coincidence he left the body in the same place. So this is what the cops were dealing with at this time. This is what that the town and the city and everyone, the community was dealing with, was three fucking crazy things happening at the same time. They are also known as, when they were first trying to figure out what to be called, when the media was first trying to figure out what to call them, they called them the Illinois Cannibal Murders or the Jack the Ripper Killings. They were also referred to as the Cult Murders, Devil Worship Cult Mutilations, Jack the Ripper Style Slayers, Ripper Style Murderers, and then finally it's settled on Ripper Murderers and the Ripper Crew. So that is the gist of the Chicago Ripper's and the brothers that were part of it. I will say that, again, I'm a little disappointed that this was supposed to focus on the brothers mostly and their involvement in the whole thing. But when you do these things, you never know how things are going to turn and twist and what you're going to find. It's still intriguing that there was a set of brothers that happened to get caught up in this. 
and as I find more out, hopefully I'll be able to find some more information specifically about Andy and Tommy, and I will be able to shed some more light on that. Make sure that you stay tuned. We have I will have the Reigns Brothers coming out later this week, and that will be the final in the uh, series of Families That Murder Together and Sitch. Make sure to stay tuned because we're also going to be covering, for Valentine's Day, Couples That Killed Together. Isn't it romantic? Make sure you stay tuned on the Facebook and Instagram pages. And go to MurderLabMedia.com for all your Murder Lab wants and needs. You can find the references for the episodes, past episodes, all kinds of stuff on there. Now, I will have uh, Igor do Igor's thing with her Survivors episode. Don't forget to share. Share, share, share. Rats. I am the oft-referred-to, much-ballyhooed Igor, the socially distant assistant. Queen Victoria has graciously allowed me out of the lab for a while to share my own special brand of macabre. Today I'll be sharing with you a serial killer adjacent subject, SK Survivors. Now this, this topic is personal to me. I was once chased by a serial killer. We were uh, both running for my life. <laughs> Insert rim job here. Now, I wanted to start off with a serial killer joke because serial killer jokes are okay as long as they are properly executed. And I wanted to do this episode to really give the props to those badasses that have come face to face with a serial killer and live to tell their tale. To me, there really are more than survivors, they're heroes. And we all like to think we like turn into Buffy the Vampire Slayer or something, but I really don't think that would end that way for me. I'd like to think so. I'd probably just like taser myself if I had a taser or if I had mace, mace myself. It's hard to really look professional after that. But I really don't want to find out. In my research, I initially based it on the lineup.com serial killer survivors, five people who live to tell terrifying tales by Catherine Felon or Phelan, P-H-E-L-A-N. Now she mentions Whitney Bennett, Rhonda Williams, Brian Hartnell, Rebecca Gard, and Kathy Kleiner. And because she tended to focus on specific people, even if there were other others with them that were survivors, I went ahead and gave them credit as well. So I have also included in my list, Timothy Curley, Mike Magoo, or Magoo, it's M-A-G-E-A-U, Karen Chandler, and her Florida State University roommate, Cheryl Thomas. So without much further, Adieu. We will get things started. The BA, or badass, number one is Whitney Bennett. So it's the day after the July 4th holiday, 1985. Whitney's 16, and she's sleeping. In crawls uh, Richard Ramirez into her room, hits her over the head, then leaves the room, goes to find a knife, can't find one, Returns to her room, trying to use the telephone cord to strangle her. So 
for some reason, the sparks fly from the cord, freaks him out. He's thinking that it's Jesus giving him a sign, so he nopes the hell out of there. But she does, Whitney, have to get 478 stitches in her scalp from the beating, but she goes on to testify against him. So here's to BA number one, Whitney. Next, moving on, have BAs two and three. And these are Rhonda Williams and Timothy Curley. So Rhonda's 15 and she is dating 17-year-old Elmer Henley, okay? They are together along with 20-year-old Timothy Curley, and they just uh, happen to be hanging out at whose home? Dean Quarrel, the Candyman killer. So Dean is really pissed off that he's brought a girl instead of the usual young boys that Elmer normally brings him. So he's pissed, but he just, he deals with it. He rolls with it, unfortunately. And he says that we'll just torture um, Rhonda and Timothy Curley. So he tells Elmer, you go ahead and you take her, I'll take Curley. Well, Henley finally has had enough of it. And he has been doing this for two years, being the whipping boy slash accomplice for Dean. So he shoots him five times. Now, in the initial source, it says that Coral was naked and raping Curly when he was shot. But in a minute here, I'll go through what Curly says 35 years later actually happened. So then Henley ends up calling the police, letting the pedophile out of the bag, as it were, and brings all of the Candyman's crimes to light. So, Rhonda Williams, Timothy Curley, BAs, two and three. So, talking more about Curley, 2008, like I said, on the 35th anniversary of the crime, he decided to finally speak out. He had stayed out of the public eye, but... He says since he was the only male survivor of the Candyman, he really just was finally ready to talk about it. He said he was naked and strapped face down on a board when Dean Coral was threatening to cut off his arm and about to rape him. So Timothy Curley says, no, no rapey, which is good if that didn't happen. So I'm not sure where to go, but hey, I'm going to listen to the uh, badass here. And 24 of the 27 bodies were identified as of the writing of the article. So, can I hear what, what? And I can't, but that's okay. We got the BA number four, Brian Hartnell. You're going to probably know this when I start telling you uh, what happens. It was September 1969. Brian and Cecilia Shepard, on a picnic, strange dude walks up. This dude's wearing a hood, sunglasses over the eye holes, a bib with a symbol on it, holding a gun. That probably gave it away. He, he made Cecilia tie up Brian. Then he tied up Cecilia, stabbing them and leaving them for dead. So later the man was deemed, of course, the Zodiac Killer. He did steal Brian's car. He then wrote a letter to the police describing the murders, followed up with a call to report his own crime. Now, Cecilia, although she was mortally wounded, she was able to provide a description of the killer. 
before she did die, but Brian was unable. He just couldn't remember anything. Now, as I was also looking into this about Brian, I found some an interesting little article from the AV Club, which you might be familiar with. And there's a contributor there named Dan Nealon. And he has a little byline that says, pay me to write for you, you coward. So I think that him and I could be friends. He was doing a story on the reality of the movie the Zodiac based on what Brian's experience was in real life. And Brian said that the movie was true to life in the scene where Cecilia was being stabbed and he was actually stabbed in the back six times. And in his words, it's an eerie reproduction of what happened in my vision. I couldn't have scripted it better. And apparently the people behind the film were given access to case files, interviewed survivors, and practically built their own investigation into the Zodiac Killer's identity simply to make a finished product feel like the real life story they were trying to tell. So, again, can't imagine any of that happening, but to be able to survive that and somehow move forward, it's amazing to me. Let's see it there for BA number four. Mr. Brian Hartnell. Now, the badass, number five, I can't pronounce his last name. It's Mike Maju or Magoo. It's M-A-G-E-A-U. He was only 19 when he was shot four times by the Zodiac. He was with Darlene Farron, who was 22, and she was shot five times. They were just parked in a secluded location talking. Another vehicle pulls up, dude walks up with a flashlight, and then just fired five shots in their car. He came back when he heard Mike screaming in pain, fired two more shots at each of them. Mike was able to give the police what he remembered of the shooter. He was a white man, 5'8 to 5'9, late 20s to early 30s, stocky build, round face, and brown hair. Now, unfortunately, Farron died of her injuries, but again, can't imagine the Zodiac just being fired on and being able to live. I just, I can't, I just can't. If we go on to Badasses 6 and 7, this actually 6, 7, and 8 actually all went to the same school together. Um, it's Florida State Universities, and it was Chi Omega Sorority that initially was broken into for the first BAs we got, six and seven, on January 15th, 1978. Now, two of the women were raped and murdered by Ted Bundy. He then went down the hall, turned his sadistic attention on roommates Kathy Kleiner and Karen Chandler, who he hit with a heavy oak log as they slept. Another of the sorority sisters happened to be coming home at the same time, and her headlights flashed in his face from her car, and it scared Bundy, who then fled. A while later, still not satiated because his other got interrupted, 
Burrito Bundy heads down the street onto our badass number eight. And he was arrested a month later. And before we move on to badass number eight, Karen's skull, all the bones in her face and jaw were fractured. Also, one of her arms was fractured and he crushed several of her fingers. She had to have her jaw broken and had to be wired shut. And I think I even read somewhere else that it wasn't uh, healing correctly, straight. And so they had to re-break it and set it again. The misery. But again, badasses six and seven. We got the Chi Omega Sorority Sisters. Moving on to badass eight. Again, he's still there torturing Ted. But he goes six blocks away. After fleeing, the sorority came upon a lone dweller, Cheryl Thomas. Now, he caused her severe head injuries and put her in a coma. Her neighbors, they heard the fight, they heard the fracas, called the police. And then the police were updated that there was an escaped murderer, Ted Bundy. Cheryl did wake up nine weeks later with permanent hearing loss in her left ear. So let's hear it for my badasses, six, seven, and eight, for the Florida State University. My last badass is not shy in any regards. Rebecca Gard, or Gardy, it's G-A-R-D-E, was a 20-year-old telemarketer. She was walking home, 1982. Gary Ridgway pulled over offered her $20 for, for a BJ and a ride. Not necessarily in that order. He was apparently following the old traveling adage of ass, gas, or grass, but uh, wasn't real thorough in the offering. But Rebecca, who was said to have a history of sex work and drug use, did accept the ride and the other proposition. So unfortunately, he drove her to the woods where he did try to strangle her, but this mama wasn't having it. Shoved the Green River Killer into a tree, stupefying him. Rebecca was able to run away, find a local house to hide, but because she was afraid that they wouldn't believe her, she didn't report the incidents to the police. She didn't do that until two years later when she told the authorities. Now, all these stories have reinforced my reason for doing the episode. These uber humans weren't victims that allowed any of these psychopaths to enforce their will on them and call it a day. Their stories show so much more than a killer's brutality. It really does shine a powerful light on the strength of the human spirit, which provides hope and a semblance of justice. Queen V is ushering me back into the lab with offers of salty fish head goodness. So I gore departs my fellow lab rats. Remember, everyone must find their truth. And mine is Abby Normal.